The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast. Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni. Covenant, Law, Grace, and Antinomianism. Chalcedon Position Paper Number 11. The Bible is a covenant book and basic to the understanding of all its teachings is the doctrine of the covenant. A covenant is a treaty, marriage, or bond between two parties, either individuals or groups. Covenants can be divided into two classes. First, we have covenants between relative, quote, equals, unquote, or between, quote, unequal, unquote, parties of a comparable nature. All covenants between people or between nations fall into this class. Second, A covenant can be between a great and transcendental power, a God, and a people whom he chooses. Here, there is no comparable nature, nor any common level of communication. Such a covenant on the initiative of the superior power is a covenant of grace. The covenant of Scripture between the triune God and a chosen people is a covenant of grace. For God the Lord to enter into a treaty or relationship with his creatures and to bind himself to faithfulness thereto is an act of sovereign grace. Thus, from beginning to end, the Bible gives us God's covenant of grace. God's relationship to Adam, to Noah, Moses, David, and to us is an act of grace. God does not need man's aid, and to bind himself to a treaty with man is pure grace on his part. A covenant, however, is also always a matter of law. To speak of a covenant is to speak of law. In covenants, two parties agree to abide by common law and justice, or righteousness. This means a common faith, or religion. Hence, God forbids all alliances by a covenant nation with ungodly powers. 
Exodus 23, 31 through 33, Exodus 34, 12 through 16, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. Similarly, all mixed marriages of believers and unbelievers are forbidden as violations of God's covenant. As Amos asked of all such unequal yoking, quote, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Unquote. Amos 3, 3. Paul summarizes the doctrine thus, quote, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Unquote. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. A covenant with an unbelieving person or nation means being yoked to an ungodly doctrine of justice or righteousness and bound by a law which is evil in God's sight. In a covenant, the superior power gives the law to the lesser power. In human covenants, there is often some trading with regard to the legal requirements. In God's covenant with man, there is a unilateral declaration of law. The law of the covenant is God's law only. Where there is no law, there is no covenant. For a covenant imposes a law on all concerned, and the penalty for violation of covenant law is death. Hence, a covenant is not made, it is cut, and it requires the shedding of blood to indicate the penalty for all violations of the covenant and its law. But a covenant also requires an eating, a common meal, to indicate communion and community. The covenant members are now one family. In God's covenant with man, we are by His sovereign grace made members of His family by adoption. God's covenant with man is all of grace, and yet it is also law. For God to give His law to man is an act of grace, a covenant act, for law is the bond of community. Law sets forth the common righteousness or justice which governs the family members. To oppose law, grace, and covenant is to deny all three. They are not opposing concepts, but rather different aspects of the same fact of a relationship to the throne of God. Scripture repeatedly equates breaking God's law with breaking His covenant. Hosea 8.1 tells us, quote, Set thy trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle to the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law, unquote. Psalm 78.10 reads, quote, They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. Unquote. To be in covenant with the Lord requires keeping His law. 2 Kings 23, 3 and 24. According to Isaiah 24.5, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant, unquote. Again and again, Scripture indicts all who breaks God's law as covenant breakers. Antinomianism thus is more than covenant breaking. It is the denial of the covenant and of covenant justice or righteousness. God's covenant, grace, and law are inseparable. Antinomians, however, seek to separate grace from law and then finally from the covenant as well. The end result is no grace at all. 
and unrighteous and lawless grace is not grace, but sin. Phariseeism commits the opposite sin, legalism. It denies grace in favor of works and thereby seeks to reduce the covenant to the human level. In example, two parties or more are less equal standing, able to give something one to another. The covenant law is then altered, as in Phariseeism, to make it by reinterpretation man's tradition and law. The result is again the destruction of God's covenant and a denial of law as well as grace. The product of the covenant is peace, peace between God and man and between covenant men. To violate God's covenant is to violate his peace as well. The lack of peace today is evidence of a violated covenant. Again, basic to every covenant is an oath, a blood oath, Exodus 24, 6-8, whereby each party pledged themselves ready to die for the other or to die if they violated the covenant law. We cannot understand the constitutional requirement for an oath of office in the United States apart from this fact. An oath had only one meaning to the framers of the U.S. Constitution, a covenant oath. Hence, the oath was taken and still is on a Bible at one time open to Deuteronomy 28. The oath signified a nation and its officers in covenant with God, invoking covenant blessings and curses on themselves in terms of their faithfulness or disobedience. Christ's death can only be understood in terms of the covenant. God's people had broken his covenant, and the penalty was death. Christ came as very God to manifest God's faithfulness to his own. Christ, as very man, took upon himself the covenant sentence of death for his remnant. The unbelieving covenant people perished, and the redeemed remnant became the nucleus of a continuing and renewed covenant of the people of God's calling and choosing. Just as the Hebrews speaks of cutting a covenant, so it speaks of cutting an oath. Deuteronomy 29.12 The covenant and its oath both witness to the shedding of blood for the violation of God's covenant. To violate God's law is to despise His grace and covenant, and vice versa. Marriage is a form of covenant, and every covenant, like marriage, requires a commitment to a common life. It means that we are not our own. Quote, For you are bought with a price, unquote. The price of Christ's atonement. 1 Corinthians six twenty. No more than love in marriage is antinomian and lawless is covenant love antinomian or lawless. The covenant is totally grace, law, and love. Basic to understanding God's covenant is the fact that in Adam, the covenant was with all mankind. Again, with Noah, Genesis 9, 1-17. It was with all men, with Noah and all his descendants. Thus, the covenant is misread if seen in purely national or ecclesiastical terms. The covenant is with mankind. Hence, all men are either covenant keepers or covenant breakers. In Jesus Christ, God creates a new humanity as his covenant people, and the Lord of the covenant sends out his people into all the world to bring all men and nations into his covenant and under his law and grace. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 The covenant law thus makes a claim upon all men everywhere. 
The covenant requires all men to be God's people, to live in His grace by His law. The covenant alone gives peace with God and in Him between men. The covenant is a brotherly covenant, or a covenant of brotherhood between covenant men. Amos 1, 9. It is a covenant of peace, Numbers twenty five twelve, and of, quote, peace and prosperity, unquote. Deuteronomy 23, 6. In Deuteronomy 28, all the blessings and curses of the covenant for faithfulness and for unfaithfulness are plainly set forth. They tell us much about the calamities of our time. Because the covenant is the mark of God's peace, certain covenant signs set forth that peace and rest in God's covenant grace. The rainbow is a witness to God's covenant. Genesis 9:17. But even more, the Sabbath is the regular and recurring witness to the covenant and its peace. Faithfulness to the Sabbath in all its fullness of meaning thus means true rest and peace in the covenant of grace. Circumcision and then baptism mark covenant faith as well. In Deuteronomy 31, 9-13, the public reading of the covenant law every seventh year set forth symbolically that the law of God is his peace treaty with us in Christ, and that his law shows to covenant man the life of righteousness and peace. An example, how to walk with the Lord. Law is the definer of relationships. It is enacted morality and is a theological concern. All men give allegiance to one form of law while denying other kinds of law. Law can be statist, humanistic, Buddhist, Islamic, anarchistic, every man his own law, or what have you. But law of some kind is inescapable. Any kind of law we affirm will be a religious affirmation. Men today are commonly antinomian in relationship to God's law, but they are dedicated to their own law, whatever it may be. The crisis of our age can be seen as a crisis of law. Our age is passionately concerned with law and justice of a humanistic sort, and the result is a growing lawlessness and injustice, because humanistic doctrines of law and justice are not based on God's reality. Moreover, the more, quote, democratic, unquote, justice becomes, the more it exalts every man's desire to be his own law, and the more the will of man takes priority over the law of God. As a result, we have what John Lukacs, in The Passing of a Modern Age, 1970, called, quote, the democratization of violence, unquote, page 48. The Bible equates antinomianism with practical atheism. The theme verse of Judges states, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel. That is, God the king and lawgiver had been rejected by Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Unquote. Judges 21.25, CF 17.6, and 19.1. The first half of this statement calls attention to the fact that whatever the Israelites may have professed, they had actually or implicitly denied God as their Lord and lawgiver. As a result, original sin, the principle of the fall, had become operative. Quote, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Unquote. An example determining for yourself what constitutes good and evil or law. Genesis 3, 5. 
Law and morality today are do-it-yourself projects. Basic to status education is a pragmatic view of truth and morality. For progressive education, truth became the will of the democratic majority and the great community, the incarnation of truth. Facts in themselves, it was held, are not true. They are instruments, and truth is their pragmatic application to fulfill the democratic consensus. Values, then, are personal goals, which permit self-realization in a social context without harm to others. The doctrine of consenting adults as validation for any act has its source in this concept. Value or morality is not obedience to God-given laws, but the pursuit of personal goals without social violence. Morality was thus taught as an anti-authoritarian and purely personal standard according to which all men can do as they please, provided other persons as individuals, the group, or society were not coerced or hurt. The practical implication was that a new and very dangerous authority was introduced, society and or the state. God's entire body of laws is comprehended in one average-sized book. It is readily understandable by all men, and its commandments easily obeyed. The laws of the state gives us an ever-expanding, ever-changing body of rules. The laws governing any man, city, county, state, federal, and those of all regulatory agencies at each level are greater by far than any man can know. Even lawyers must research each case in terms of the jungle of applicable laws. Daily, new laws and recent court decisions expand this body of laws. There are enough laws to enable the state to find any and every man guilty of some violation or other. Moreover, the body of laws applicable to each man is so great that if he sought to have a copy of each law to know them, he would have to have a library building greater than his house to hold them. Society as a standard is no better. Social judgments on good and evil have varied dramatically in my lifetime with respect to abortion, sexual laws, war, pacifism, militarism, isolationism, interventionism, etc., and much more. The weather vane is a fitting symbol of socially determined values and morality. Thus, humanism begins by becoming antinomian with respect to God's law. It creates in time such social chaos that its own children become antinomian with respect to humanistic law and regard, quote, the establishment, unquote, anti-law as itself the cause of disorder and the enemy. The world's present course points to disaster. Quote, now therefore, why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? Unquote. Second Kings 19.10 God the Lord is always king. However, if he is not our savior and lawgiver, then as king, he is our judge and our enemy. The harvest of antinomianism is judgment and destruction. April 1980 Religious Liberty Chalcedon Position Paper Number 12 One of the great moments of history occurred at the time of the Reformation, but its significance was too little appreciated then, and its implications were not developed. Frederick III, or Frederick the Wise, 1463-1525, was Elector of Saxony, 
1486 through 1525. He founded the University Wittenberg, where both Martin Luther and Melanchthon taught. Luther and the Elector may never have met, although Frederick gradually came to accept certain Lutheran doctrines. He remained a Catholic to the end. His long protection of Luther was not motivated by agreement. What were his motives? At this distance, it is not easy to say. Certainly, if we limit it to self-interest, we are distorting history. True, there were problems of jurisdiction, the elector's area. Thuringia and Saxony was a domain one-ninth the size of England. In it were a hundred different monasteries and parts of six different bishoprics. Five of the bishops lived outside of the elector's realm. Thus, a different law prevailed for these ecclesiastical domains. It would be easy to conclude that self-interest led Frederick the Wise to defend Luther. He could then control the church as easily as the state if his were a unified realm. Such a conclusion presupposes a desire by Frederick to control Luther, something he did not do. Luther was more ready for a magisterial power in the church than was Frederick. Frederick protected Luther. He did not seek to control him. This point is all the more important when we recognize their religious differences. The protection, however, went both ways. In a letter of 1522, cited by Eugene Rosenstock, Husey, in Out of Revolution, Autobiography of Western Man, Luther at a critical point, offered the elector his protection. He wrote, quote, This is written to your grace, that your grace may know I am coming to Wittenberg under a much higher protection than the prince elector's. I have no mind to ask for your grace's protection. Nay, I hold that I could protect your grace more than he could protect me. Moreover, if I knew that your grace could and would protect me, I would not come. In this, no sword can direct nor help. God alone must act in this matter without all care and seeking. Quote, Therefore he who believes most will protect most, and because I feel that your grace is still weak in the faith, I cannot by any means think of your grace as the man who could protect or save me. Unquote. Quote, protection, unquote, was thus made a theological fact. In terms of Deuteronomy 28, it was grounded in God's blessing on faith and obedience. As Rosenstock Husey noted so incisively, quote, Thomas Paine offering George Washington his protection would seem ridiculous, unquote. Both the protection and the freedom which concerned Frederick III and Luther had become theological facts. A Catholic prince and a Protestant reformer had come together to establish an important Christian relationship, one with deep biblical roots and long strands in church history, which established a fact too little appreciated in the days that followed. In the United States, the First Amendment to the Constitution represents a development of this faith. This amendment was added at the insistence of the clergy. The amendment reads, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition for a redress of grievances. Unquote. 
We miss the point of this law if we fail to note that each of the original Ten Amendments, as well as subsequent ones, is a single body of thought and law, a unified whole, a single subject. We are not talking about three, four, or five things here, freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, or petition, nor one, freedom. After all, other amendments deal with freedom as well, and if freedom were the key legal concept, the first five amendments could have been made one amendment. The unifying fact is the First Amendment is a man's immunity in his faith and beliefs. The freedom to express his beliefs in religious worship, in speech, press, assembly, and petition. This law was framed by colonial men for whom these things were matters of faith and principle. There was therefore for them a necessary unity in this statement. Instead of five rights, they saw one fact. Their separation today means their diminution. It means also the steady decline of freedom in every aspect of the First Amendment. Thus, the purpose of the First Amendment was to bar the state from entrance into or powers over the principled or religious stand and expressions of law-abiding men in worship, instruction, speech, publication, assembly, and petition. When protesting Luther said to Catholic elector Prince Frederick III that he, Luther, was Frederick's protection in his, Luther's, free and independent move and expression of faith, and Frederick accepted that fact and acted on it, a major step was taken. Freedom of religion was then not a privilege created and granted by the state, but rather something radically different. It meant, rather, the protection of the state by the freedom of faith. The stronger and more faithful that the free exercise of faith, the greater the protection of the state. As Luther audaciously declared, He who believes most will protect most. The stronger that free faith is, the stronger the state and society. This freedom of religion, as earlier Americans understood it, meant that the ministry of grace had a Levitical or instructional duty to set forth the counsel of God for every area of life. The church was separate from the state, but not religion. Through the ministry of instruction, God's law word concerning every area of life and thought was to be set forth. Decline set in when the church limited the scope of God's word to the church and when the state began to extend its powers over the family, the school, economics, and more. Today, current court cases see claims by state agencies which would entirely eliminate the First Amendment immunities for religion. The dereliction of the press in this situation is particularly distressing. The press itself has been the target of various court decisions which seriously curtail or limit the freedom of the press or, at the very least, place it under a cloud. Of course, all these decisions have a, quote, good, unquote, purpose. Every restriction placed upon freedom claims a good cause to curtail or restrain abuses. All serve, rather, as restraints upon good motives, not evil ones. Evil places no value on, nor attention to, restraints. Criminal codes already provide a legitimate recourse against the evil misuse of freedom. 
attempts to restrain pornography and libel have had minimal results. The lawbreaker is a specialist in circumventing the law, whereas the legitimate publication feels the restraints which the lawbreaker is impervious to. Moreover, laws seldom are limited to the purpose of the legislators. As Charles Curtis noted in A Better Theory of Legal Interpretation, quote, Language, at any rate, in legal documents does not fix meaning. It circumscribes meaning. Legal interpretation is concerned not with the meaning of words, but only with their boundaries, unquote. Those boundaries are almost always extended to unrecognizable limits. As a result, attempts to eliminate, quote, abuses, unquote, in religion or press wind up creating new and worse abuses of power by the state. The press has been defending itself from the encroachments of statism, but on a weak and limited grounds. It limits its First Amendment concern too often to four words thereof, and it neglects the portion which cites free exercise of religion. All over the United States, churches, Christian schools, and parents and children have been on trial. The attacks have come from a variety of state agencies, especially departments of education, zoning welfare, and the like. Federal attacks have come from the Internal Revenue Service, the Labor Department, the National Labor Relations Board, the White House, and more. The press has given minimal attention to these things, although they represent a major reversal of American policy. The press has become a commercial enterprise as part of large conglomerate enterprises reaching into a variety of manufacturing areas. All valid efforts, but in the progress, it has forgotten the religious nature of its immunity. The freedom it has enjoyed has not been a federal grant, but a religious principle. The change in its status is due to a shift of faith. If man's faith is in the state, then the state is the protector of man's freedom and the author thereof. Then, in every area, we are dependent upon the state. The state giveth, and the state taketh away. Blessed be the name of the state. The national favorite of the United States, quote, America, unquote, still celebrates in song an older and theocratic faith. The last stanza of Reverend Samuel Smith's song, 1832, declares, Our Father's God to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. Protection in this theocratic perspective is not by state controls, but by the might of the, quote, great God, unquote, who is, quote, our King, unquote. The brightness of the land is not in regulatory agencies, but in, quote, freedom's holy light, unquote. This phrase is an echo of the premise which undergirds the First Amendment, the relationship of freedom to faith. But this is not all. Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution requires an oath of office from the President. Such an oath is now a meaningless and even blasphemous fact. However, to the framers of the Constitution, an oath was a biblical fact. To them, an oath was, first, a covenant fact, an example of a covenant between the state and God, and second, a theocratic fact, an oath of loyalty to the sovereign. 
in the Constitutional Convention, an objection was actually made to adding anything to the oath such as, quote, and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, unquote. The fact of an oath Wilson held made this addition unnecessary. It was, however, still retained. Third, an oath invoked the covenant blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, as declared in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. An oath thus invokes a judgment from God rather than man as the basic judgment. It sees God, not the state, as the author of all blessings, including liberty. Today we are in a time of judgment because men have sought all over the world both freedom and blessings from the state rather than from God our King. As a result, they have gained slavery and curses. In the humanistic status conception of things, freedom is not a privilege and a blessing from and under God, but either a human right or a state grant. Man, the sinner, however, is a slave, and his freedom is in essence a freedom to sin. The love of slavery has more clearly marked human history than the love of freedom. Mankind has largely been in chains throughout history because men have preferred security to freedom. Men have often rebelled against the limitations imposed by slavery, but even more against the responsibilities imposed by freedom. Freedom is not a natural fact, but a religious principle, and the decline of freedom is an aspect of the rise of false faiths, false forms of, quote, Christianity, unquote, as well as other varieties of faith. This century has seen, moreover, the divorce of freedom from faith, with great damage and decay on both sides. When Luther offered his protection to the Elector Frederick, he had just come out of hiding at the peril of his life. His reappearance was an act of faith, and one which Frederick matched. For all too long, those who have believed the most have been Marxists, Keynesians, Fascists, and Humanists generally. Their, quote, freedom, unquote, has been slavery, for, quote, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel, unquote. Proverbs 12:10. Now, however, as the faith of Christians strengthens, battles are underway for the freedom of Christian schools, churches, and families. Religious liberty is only a product of religious understanding, growth, and faith. If Christians lose their freedom, they will only have themselves to blame and their indifference to the author of true liberty, the Lord our King. May 1980. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his pain, the very prize. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Serves we should to Jesus.
Tell the world. 